Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God." For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Thanks again, Kira. Good morning, everybody. Hello. How you doing? How you doing? Good. Awesome. Uh, So uh, school has begun for Williamson County and Metro Nashville. So teachers, administrators, students, hope you're off to a great start. And then uh, several others starting here in the next uh, couple of weeks or so. So we're getting excited for all of you and excited too for that uh, time when we're all gathered back here for a new ministry year. Very excited about what's around the corner. Uh, But this morning, I'm going to continue in what we've been going through this uh, whole summer, which is our summer series that we've been calling The Battle Within. And uh, uh, Paul Lim has alluded to to this morning's theme several times in his prayers and in his leading uh, about the feeling of invisibility, the feeling of of being small, a feeling of being less significant than we would like or hope to be, uh, and so on. And so what I want to do this morning is start from, uh, from the vantage point of a history lesson uh, and sort of the, 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 the thesis right now that I'm going to bring to you at the beginning is that uh, a core value of the human race since the beginning of time has been the acquisition and the exertion of power. And along with that, the pursuit of things like fame and celebrity and significance and so on. And it started all the way back in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve wanted what? They wanted to be like God. And, and of course, that ended up being a train wreck. Uh, but it also ended up being sort of a prototype experience for, for what the rest of the human race would, would go through as it continued to repeat history after Adam and Eve. Tower of Babel was built as a monument to the greatness of humanity. And God confused the language and scattered the people, and they became uh, insignificant rather than significant. Uh, They got the opposite of what they wanted because they were chasing power. 
Babylon's Nebuchadnezzar set up a statue in honor of himself and demanded that all citizens worship that statue of him, uh, treat him as a god, uh, or be destroyed, be executed. Roman Caesar did the same thing. It wasn't Jesus who was to be regarded as Lord or anyone else in ancient Rome, which was incidentally the context into which the New Testament was written. It was Caesar that you were to declare was Lord. That's why it was so controversial uh, and so dangerous to confess that Jesus was Lord in those days and in those times. Since then, the world of science has produced Darwin's evolutionary theory, uh, the theory of natural selection, the survival of the fittest, uh, the strong eat the weak. Uh, Anne Rand's uh, novels represent this philosophy that it's the strong who survive and it's the, the small people, the little people and the weak who get squashed. Nietzsche talked about the will to power, uh, you know, sort of this, this uh, proverbial Superman that he talked about. Uh, his, his philosophy uh, was that the main and driving force, and this was really an observation as well, uh, the, the main driving force in human beings is the pursuit of achievement, ambition, reaching the highest possible position and status in life. Of course, we have the 17th and 18th century European uh, uh, Enlightenment, uh, which was largely an intellectual movement, uh, the age of reason, as some have called it, uh, a lot of optimism about human potential. Even the poet Swinburne wrote, dared to write the words, glory to man in the highest, because it was believed that human beings had reached such a place of nirvana that we had such great potential to exert power and make the world better. 1973, influenced by uh, the Enlightenment, uh, came the Humanist Manifesto, which was signed by approximately 150 leading uh, 20th century academics. It was the dawn of the technological boom. Secular thinkers were brimming with optimism about human power and potential. Here's an excerpt from that. We have virtually conquered the planet explored the moon, overcome the natural limits of travel and communication. We stand at the dawn of a new age. By using technology wisely, we can control, that's another word for power, we can control our environment, conquer poverty, modify human behavior, alter the course of human evolution and cultural development, and provide humankind with an unparalleled opportunity for achieving an abundant and meaningful life. And so, Roughly 50 years later, how's it working out for us, this project, built on so much optimism about the kind of world that we as these great, powerful human beings have the ability to create and look at the world. 21st century American politics sort of says it all, right? Everybody, regardless of, of what party you're running for, everybody's got this utopian vision for how great the world will be if they get the power. We will use our power to uplift the good guys and to defeat the bad guys. But the problem is that everybody's got a different definition of who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And so really the verdict is in, and it's going to continue to come in this way. Every time we have hung our hat on human power and on the acquisition thereof, it has been a failed project. And so the question is, when will we learn? You, know, you look at Adam and Eve, 
It was a train wreck. You look at the Tower of Babel, the human race got confused. Nebuchadnezzar's great Babylon, which, which couldn't be conquered by anyone, great power of the world, conquered and, and has been no more ever since. The same ha happened with Caesar's Rome. Nietzsche committed suicide. You know, enlightened philosopher, enlightenment philosophers uh, died in despair. You know, the secular humanist Aldous Huxley being one of them, who said uh, in his latter years these words, maybe, you know, this was somebody who was incredibly optimistic about human power and potential. Maybe this world, he said, is another planet's hell. And on his deathbed, he, he, he was afflicted, uh, his voice was afflicted, he was mute, he couldn't speak, and so he jotted a note on his deathbed to his wife that, 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 that said this, LSD, 100 milligrams. And that was sort of the end of the, the, the optimistic glory to man in the highest human power project. And so, so could it be that for the history of the world, we've gotten it upside down the whole time? I think that that's Paul's theory here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I think that's his theory, that, that in God's reality, that, 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 that in the true kingdom, that, that, that when the world is working the way that the world is supposed to work, it's not, you know, sort of Nietzsche's, you know, Superman and the will to power that, 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 that wins the day, but what wins the day in the end is this, the small become great and the great become small. The great become small in their own eyes, the small become great in their, their own eyes because the great are small in God's eyes and the, the small are great in God's eyes. And so, let's run through those, those two things. You're welcome, by the way. That's two, two weeks in a row with just two points. The small become great. Verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now, in a place like Corinth, which was a city filled with movers and shakers and, and culture makers and, 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 you know, get her done kinds of people, industry leaders and such, these, to the average Corinthian mind, would, would have been demoralizing words. Not many of you are wise or powerful or of noble birth. It's just another way of saying you're nobodies. You know, this, 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 this phrase here, noble birth, not many of you were of noble birth. In, in ancient Rome, your lineage was your resume. Your family tree was your resume. It, it was what validated you. It, it was what said you either matter or you don't matter. And what people would do with their genealogies or their family trees was that they would, they would erase the, the, the embarrassing or insignificant uh, people in their lineage, and they would, they would put to the top the, the sort of famous, well-known, you know, pillars of the community and such, because the genealogy, it was who you were from. It wasn't how hard you worked. It wasn't what you've accomplished as much as who you were from that was your validating record as a person of note. It was, as Paul says in verse 31, your boast. Your boast is your family name. And if you don't have a good family name that you've really got nothing to boast about, you're insignificant, in other words. So, if your ancestry had 
wealth and success and celebrity and pillars of the community and, and so on uh, there in the ancestry. You were somebody, and if not, you were more or less ignored by society. So, what we've got here in Paul's letter to these people who largely hadn't made it big in Corinthian society is a cosmic reversal. He says, on the one hand, not many of you were great according to Corinthian standards, and yet, verse 26, you are the chosen people of God. Talk about a heritage. Talk about a lineage. Talk about being able to boast about who you're from. The King and Creator of the universe has chosen you to be His. So, think about this. Think about the disciples that that Jesus chose, like sort of His initial tribe, the people who were the first receivers of the Great Commission. You know, go out and change the world. Go out and change the nations. Transform them. Teach them everything that I have taught you. They were ordinary on their best days. You know, mostly blue-collar. Not a lot of them had formal education. None of them would be found on anybody's VIP lists. None of them would have gotten the backstage passes or anything like that. And not only were they ordinary at their best, they were subordinary at their worst. You, you have Matthew, who's a despised tax collector. You've got Simon, who's sort of a fringe political zealot, just sort of running his mouth about the government and how the problem with the world is the government. And then you've got Thomas, the religious skeptic. You've got Peter, who's a bull in a china shop, who's got terrible impulse control, no emotional intelligence. You know, he's both a bully and a coward. Usually both of those things go together. And he has moments of racism or racist tendencies. And so, one of the the most popular names that Jesus used to describe his disciples, his little tribe, his closest friends, his chosen ones, uh, when he described them as a group was, was the Greek word oligopistoi, which means you of little faith. So, in a sense, Jesus is saying similar things to his disciples as, as Paul's saying to the, the Christians in Corinth. By yourself, according to worldly standards, uh, you know, you're, you're really not that significant. But then you look at Jesus's genealogy, you look at Jesus's lineage. Who was chosen to, 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 to be the validating record for Jesus? Who did Jesus not erase from, from his um, resume, from his family tree? Included were Abraham, who had a history of being a terrible husband, Jacob, who had a history of being a liar, Rahab, who was a prostitute, David, who was a bully, an adulterer, who abused his power. And it wasn't, it wasn't long before he, he became arguably David at his very best and most impactful historically after those events. And then you've got Joseph, who's a teenage woodworker from Nazareth. Nazareth was this sort of obscure little hick town that nobody ever thought about, and if you were from there, nobody paid you any attention because, as they said back then, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. And so, these are the people that Jesus has built His movement upon. 
And, 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 and it really does raise the question, why? And it's right here in verse 27 through 29. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. So, you've got a collision of kingdoms here. You've got the kingdom of the world and the way that the world thinks, and the kingdom of God and the way that the kingdom of God thinks. And so, it says that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast. And so, so what he's doing is he's poking at the Corinthian idol. He's, he's poking it a little bit on the chest, and then he's poking it a little bit right between the eyes. And the Corinthian idol is this. Be a mover and a shaker. Be connected to a mover and a shaker, or be nothing. And he's not confronting position, by the way. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having position. In fact, God does a lot of really significant things in the world through people with wealth and position and power and celebrity and those sorts of things. He's, He's not knocking positions. He's knocking postures. When you hang your hat on position, when you boast in your position, when your pride is, is based on not, not on whose you are, namely that you belong to the king of the universe through faith, and that's your only legitimate boast, but, but your boast is instead on where you stand in the pecking order of the world's social, you know, ladder. That's what Paul's confronting, not a position, but posture. If you have money, if you have power, if you have stature, if you have celebrity, this is a gut check. Nashville, little big town. What is one of the biggest idols in Nashville? You know, not many of you were no, of noble birth. So, 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 here Paul is going after those who are building an identity on their familial nobility. But I think in Nashville, it's, it's a slightly different take on that. It's social nobility, isn't it? It's who you're connected to. It's the circles that you run in. It's the names you drop. I love the city of Nashville, but I've never, ever, ever seen such a name-dropping city full of people, folks. I'm not kidding. That's not a joke at all. It, It says something about what's in the heart. It says something about the the cocaine you're snorting for your soul. It's what you look like and who you're plugged into and who you're connected with and who you're taking your selfies with. Oh, another Saturday with my dear friend Bono. Come on. We all know why you do that. We all know why I do that sometimes. We're trying to medicate fragile egos, are we not? Because you are nothing in Nashville if you're not connected to somebody of note. You're pining for a certain position on, on social ladders and, and pining after, you know, invitations and, and being on VIP lists and, and invitations to parties in certain social circles. It's very subtle. It's unspoken, but it's there and it's all over the place. And of course it is in, 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 in such a concentrated city of celebrity and influence like Nashville. Not a big population, but a lot of big names. And so, Paul is saying this, dear brothers, dear sisters, ask yourself, who do you welcome into your circles? What is the ratio of those that you would call friends? 
who live above you on the social ladder and who live, above, live below you on the social ladder. And if, it's, if the freight is all up here, these are the people you're chasing after in your friendships, and you're pretty much ignoring people who are below you on the social ladder, and you know, you know who's where. That's a problem. That's a worship problem. That's a human brokenness problem. That's a trying to plug your umbilical cord into something that will take life from you instead of give life to you. That's you drinking salt water and convincing yourself it's going to quench your thirst. My favorite lyric of the year, and I, I, I just automatically assumed it was a Tom Douglas song because of how beautiful it was. Uh, Tim McGraw sings it. And you can probably guess if you listen to Tim McGraw. Always stay humble and kind. I love that. I love hearing Tim McGraw sing that. Always stay humble and kind. You know, this, this was um, characteristic of, of one of my sort of dead heroes. His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. I talk about him a good bit from up here. So, Martin Lloyd-Jones ran in elite circles for, for the good part of his adult life. He was a, a very, very accomplished physician. He was a, you know, bigwig in the medical community. Uh, and uh, he was called into the pastoral ministry. And, 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 and the first, one, one of the first, if not the first uh, churches that, 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 that he was called to was a church filled with blue-collar people in, 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 in a fishing town. Uh, on the on the shores of Wales, and and one of the one of the insights that 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 emerged from that experience of, of pastoring a largely blue collar, uh, not very highly educated community, was that he and you know he writes about this that he felt more solidarity and more kindredness with those who were tethered to Jesus and 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 who had placed their faith in Christ, uh, in in that in that you know, very humble town, than he ever felt kindredness with, with those in the elite circles that he ran with who did not share his affection for Christ. And so, what he's talking about here is, is, is a cosmic reversal of the world's value systems. You've got this incredibly accomplished guy He's saying, I'm putting my anchor a lot like Moses did. You know, he chose, you know, the obscure persecuted Israelites and to, to identify with them instead of, instead of the great Pharaoh because he's understanding things from a kingdom perspective rather than a worldly one. So here's a good question to ask for those of us who are parents or maybe will someday be parents. Who is it that I want my kids to marry? Who is it that I will say yes, you know, in my heart, you know, to, to the question, you know, who are they going to marry? Is it, is it somebody with earning potential but a nominal faith? Yeah, I'll, you know, kind of kind of weak in, in, their, in their loyalty and love for Christ, but they call themselves a Christian, so, so that's good enough because they can make bank. And they've got a name, and they live in this neighborhood, and they're from this family. And they might be able to get me in these social circles too. Is it that one? Is that the person I want most? If I have to choose between the two, I want my daughters to marry somebody with great earning potential, but a very nominal faith. Or would I rather her marry, whoever the her is, somebody who for the rest of his life is going to live check to check, but who has a deep faith in the Lord Jesus? If my answer is not the latter, there's a problem in my soul. 
what are we grooming our kids for? What are we grooming them for? Why do we think they have to get into Vanderbilt? Why do we send spoken and unspoken message that they have to get into Vanderbilt? And maybe we don't say it, but we do. You know, or they, or they have to make six figures within their first five years of postgraduate life. They have to have this kind of lifestyle. They have to climb the social ladder like us so they, be, they can be anxious like us and afraid and sleepless like us. Like, seriously, though, why? Have we ever really thought about this? Why is it so important that they marry somebody who makes bank? Why is it, so imp- why is it not important that they don't have character? Do we ask ourselves these questions? We need to be asking ourselves these questions. The small become great, and, and, and then the great becomes small. This, here's, some, here's the good news for movers and shakers. Movers and shakers are not left out. That's the beautiful thing. You know, Jesus did say, he really did say, it's harder for the rich and the powerful and the privileged to enter the kingdom of God. He definitely said that that, than it is for a camel to enter the eye of a needle. He did say that. But he also said right after that, fear not, because with what's impossible with man is is possible with God. You know, the, 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 the very person who wrote this scripture, did you know that he was an elite? Did you know that Paul had the equivalent of an Ivy League education? That he was extremely successful from a very, very young age in all of the, 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 the right social circles and so on. And he never disowned those social circles, by the way. He's, he's crying out passionately for their conversion to Christ in Romans. You know, in Philippians, it says from a very, very young age, he, he was advancing far beyond his contemporaries as a young rabbi. You might say that, that Saul of Tarsus was the LeBron James of Judaism. He was like the man, right? And yet he looks back on that and he says, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, Compared to knowing Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing even in His sufferings, I regard all of my elite, you know, circle interaction, I regard all of my successes as dung. And and that is a very, very weak translation, friends. You go straight to the Greek, Paul says the S word, and I don't know why we're scared to translate it that way, but that's exactly what he says. He speaks so strongly against plugging our identity in what the world says makes us significant, because all of that stuff's going to fade. It's just going to be you and God on that last day of your life. It's just going to be you saying, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. But will we be saying, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord? Is that how we will end things? You know, there's this other thing going on in Corinth, too, if you read further. There are preacher crushes happening, you know, because there are people in the Corinthian, you know, community with with their kind of worldly thinking. They're thinking, you know, I follow Paul, and others are saying, no, I follow Peter, and others are saying, no, I follow Apollos. He's the best preacher of them all. And and, And Paul here says, look, we are mere servants. Neither Paul, neither me, nor Apollos, nor Peter is anything but only God. We are not here, us preachers, to be the point. You don't come here to hear our rhetorical flourish. You come here to meet Jesus. 
And if you're not meeting Jesus through our preaching, then go listen to somebody else. Because neither Paul nor Peter nor Apollos is anything. Only God who makes things grow. You go to Matthew 8, there's this Roman centurion who begs Jesus to heal his sick employee who is at, at the man's home. That says a lot. The man is has opened his home to his sick employee. He cares about him. He's not above opening his doors for somebody who's below him on the org chart. And Jesus says, of course, I will come to your house and I will heal him right away. And the centurion responds to Jesus. The high-ranking centurion responds to the homeless man who did not have a place to lay his head. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And it says that Jesus marveled because a man of such power and stature is stooping in humility at the feet of a homeless man. This mover and shaker is saying to a man who had no place to lay his head, I can't get out of this. I love this man. I don't want to see him die. You're the only answer to this. You're the only one who can fix this. Only one politician can fix it, folks. Jesus is the only one who can fix it. Proverbs 31, you've got another woman there in Proverbs 31 who's a mover and a shaker, astute businesswoman, very successful, great reputation in the community. Who is she? Is she referred to by the writer of Proverbs as the wife of noble birth? No. She's referred to as the wife of noble character. That's what the Scripture emphasizes there. It's her character, not her pedigree, not her earning potential, not her name and reputation, not that she was seen the other day in a selfie with Bono. She is someone whose character exceeded her gifts and whose humility exceeded her platform and exceeded her influence. She was a woman who understood the same things that Jack Jack Miller always said, that grace flows downhill. You want to get hit by the water, get to the bottom of the glass, you're going to get hit. Grace flows downhill. It meets us at the lowest points. You know, in the kingdom of God, where is stature given? Where is the true celebrity in the kingdom of God? You want, you want to know what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? The most overlooked people are the ones who are the most looked at in the kingdom of God. Who are the ones that Jesus identifies as the heirs of the kingdom of God, but babies and the poor, the people who were dismissed and ignored by society? This is If I'm allowed to have a favorite thing about the church that I pastor, it is this. It's what Casey Kramer talked about a few moments ago. It's that that celebrity stature is given in our church to people with special needs. You know, it it, it brings me back. If if you're thinking about, oh, should I try this special Saturday? Hopefully maybe this from Henry Nowen will help you about being in community with those who have special needs. So Nowen was a professor at Notre Dame and then Yale and then Harvard, and, and he left Harvard. He left a prestigious position teaching at Harvard to serve the community at Daybreak, which is a, a community of, of people with special needs, specifically with, with, with mental disabilities. And, and what this 
Notre Dame, Yale, Harvard scholar recognized very quickly in, in going to serve this community is that he didn't go to serve this community. He, he ended up going to be served by that community, not even realizing that's why he was going. He said this, if, if people with special needs express love for you, then it comes from God. It's not because you've accomplished anything. They don't love you because you, you accomplished something. They don't love you because you're famous. They don't love you because of the kickback that, that, that being connected to you can give to them socially. If they love you, it's a gift from God because it's not that they don't know what you've accomplished. These broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people now, and says, forced me to let go of my relevant self, the self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things, and forced me to reclaim the unadorned self in which I'm completely vulnerable, open to receive, and give and love regardless of any accomplishment. So on Monday, when, when you walk into your office or to your, you know, recording studio, wherever you walk into on Monday, take a look down the org chart. Or when you dine out this Friday night, take a look at your server and at the busboy. When you walk into or out of the theater or the symphony this coming Saturday night or whenever, and, and you see the street beggar, consider this. You might be staring straight at. You might be looking right at a future king or a future queen. You might be looking at the very person that God will appoint you to serve for the rest of eternity. You know, as C.S. Lewis likes to say, you've never met a mere mortal or as Francis Schaeffer was fondly, fond of saying, there are no little people. There are no little people. There are no insignificant people. None. How do we know this? Because of the king who made himself nothing. You know, Paul says in verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So if you've seen the, the play Jesus Christ Superstar, you may remember this scene, sort of this collision of powers between Pontius Pilate and Jesus Christ, who is the creator of Pontius Pilate. Pilate asks the question, who is this broken man cluttering up my hall? Who is this unfortunate? And the soldier says, king of the Jews. And then Pilate responds, hmm, so this is Jesus Christ. I'm really quite surprised. You look so small, not a king at all. But what Pilate was unable to see is that right in front of him was the true mover and shaker. Right in front of him was the true governor whose influence, impact, and reign would increase and increase and increase and never cease to increase. He didn't have eyes to see because he had the eyes of the world, not the eyes of the kingdom. He did not see that, 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 that there were two great acts of power that, 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 that dwarf every other act of power in the history of the world. One is quite obvious, the resurrection, a dead man coming out of the grave after, after being buried three days. The other is the great, sinless, perfect champion of the universe voluntarily making himself small in order to verify how great he is. You know how much intestinal fortitude it, it, it takes for somebody who's 
absolutely perfect, absolutely blameless, absolutely holy, absolutely awesome and powerful to allow himself to be finished off by people that he could just tap with his toenail and, and, and they would be finished. And yet he does out of love. The one who was in very nature God and yet did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and humbled himself even to the point of death that had eventually the name of Jesus because of that powerful act of self-humiliation, that at the name of Jesus who stripped himself of celebrity, at the name of Jesus who stripped himself of pedigree, and of name recognition, who stripped himself of these things, that at that name every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, period, the end. Grace flows downhill. God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. If anybody had a right to drop a name, wouldn't you think it would have been James, the half-brother of Jesus? If anybody ever had the right to think himself important, significant, a little bit above the rest, it would have been James, right, who grew up with Jesus, you know, survived 18 years of holiness right in front of him, right, lived to tell about it. Here's what James said, Christians in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. You are much more loved than you ever dared to think. You are much more great in the eyes of God because of Jesus than you ever dared to think. But he also said, let the rich, the influential, the powerful, those with access, steward it well, which includes taking pride in their humility. What is a person of status and celebrity on top of the social ladder supposed to think? My boast is this, that apart from Christ, I'm nothing that apart from Christ, I'm a weak, frail, fearfully made, dying man. That I am so small, not a king at all. And yet here we have the king of everything giving us a high position when we stoop low at his table where he says, look, this is not a table for good people. It's not a table for the worldly wise. It's not a table for the worldly strong. It's a table for people who are on the top of the org chart and the bottom of the org chart, who are on top of the world and, and the bottom of the barrel. It's for all of those people, regardless of position, but only because of perspective, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, including me. If that's your profession, if you've been baptized into the church of Jesus Christ, if you are pursuing Jesus and your thoughts and your, the way you use your words and, and the way you conduct your life, if you're reconciled to your neighbor, especially others who believe in Christ like you do, this is a table for you. This is also a time for us as we enjoy some time at the table, also time away from the table to enjoy community with one another. Please feel free to introduce yourself to somebody, to encourage somebody, to pass the peace of Christ, to, to take one thing, that, that one way that God has spoken to you today and, 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 and 
tell it to somebody next to you, that, that both of you can be encouraged. This is supposed to be like a family meal because that's precisely what it is.